You're listening to Ascension Sundays, an occasional audio podcast ministry featuring sermons and other recorded audio from Ascension Lutheran Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. You can find us on the web at www.thisisthefeast.org. That's www.thisisthefeast.org. We are Christ's Church, and there is a place for you here. Last week, our service closed with the hymn, The Canticle of the Turning. This stirring paraphrase of Mary's song, The Magnificat, is new to most of us, relatively speaking. I only sang it for the first time about two years ago, but it quickly became one of my favorite hymns. There's one phrase in it that always echoes in my head. The world is about to turn. We've talked a lot about turning this Advent season, when we've talked about repenting. These past few weeks, it's been a constant theme. It's probably part of why our Advent symbol is a nice, round, turnable wreath. In our Gospel lesson, Joseph has just learned that his betrothed, his fiancée, is pregnant. Now, two times in my life, my wife has come to me and told me that she was pregnant. Of course, unlike Mary and Joseph, we were married, and I was the child's father. Nonetheless, that experience allows me to say with some degree of certainty that Joseph's world is about to turn. Whatever his plans for him and Mary were, they're over now. And don't misunderstand me, his plans are any less over after he meets the angel. It isn't as if Joseph got up from this dream and said, Oh, the kid isn't from adultery? The kid is going to be from a mystical union with God. I can go back to planning a perfectly normal life now. No matter what, Joseph's world is about to turn. Encounters with God, whether directly, as a few people like Moses have had, or encounters with God mediated through angels, as Joseph had, or prophets, as King Ahaz in our Old Testament lesson had, have a way of turning the world around. King Ahaz knew that. Isaiah offers to give Ahaz a sign, and Ahaz declines the offer, saying that he doesn't wish to put the Lord to the test. Don't mistake that for piety on Ahaz's part. Ahaz is king at a time when Israel is in a pretty bizarre situation. The kingdom is split into two. And the northern kingdom has her foreign allies, and they're getting ready to attack Jerusalem. Ahaz, however, has foreign allies of his own. He thinks he has the situation under control. The last thing he wants is God mucking about in his plans. God's victories tend to be a tad unusual, after all. I mean, sure. We all know that he once led slaves to victory over Egypt, which was the world's dominant superpower at the time. But then he took those victorious slaves and stuck them in the wilderness for 40 years. Ahaz doesn't need God's sign because he doesn't need God mucking about in his plans. He wants the victory he wants, not the victory that God tends to provide. He didn't want his world to turn. Perhaps that's why the angel, when speaking to Joseph, refers to this story. Not to make any real direct assertion that Isaiah was uh, 
in this particular instance foretelling the specific birth of Jesus, but to say, whether you wanted to or not, Joseph, the world is about to turn, and it's going to be okay. We're told that Joseph was a righteous man. He probably knew the Bible. Maybe this was a favorite story of his. King Ahaz may have thought he had a handle on things in his day. Perhaps he truly thought things were under control. I wonder what his people thought. There were two armies confronting them. And who knew what their new foreign friends might do once their common enemy was defeated, if they were even so lucky as to defeat them? I wonder what they thought about how much King Ahaz had under control. These days, I've been given to wonder if anybody has anything under any sort of control. We've certainly heard from people who think that they do, or alternately, we've heard from people who think that they could have everything under control if we just elect them instead of somebody else. That's been the near constant message from many mouths for many months. Yet I'm often tempted to believe that nobody has anything under control. Last week we sat comfortably in our pews listening to my meager sermons, singing hymns, and doing the other things that we do here every Sunday morning. Just like countless people across America some of whom even listen to sermons about how horribly persecuted Christians are in America. Meanwhile, while we were doing that, Coptic Christians in Egypt, worshipping in a church far older than ours, were killed. Twenty-five Coptic Christians were killed for no reason. This is particularly shocking when you realize that Egypt was once considered one of the most safe places in the Middle East. Granted, it got that reputation by being run a town like a police state, but it was once considered very safe. And Copts, while a minority of people in Egypt, were once very well respected. Secretary General of the UN, Boutros Boutros Ghali, whom we have all heard of, was a Coptic Christian. But now 25 of them are dead, and for nothing. Elsewhere, the dangers of attending football or soccer games outside of the United States are pretty well attested to. Fights tend to break out in the stands. Sometimes those fights turn into riots. Sometimes the stands themselves collapse. And sometimes people die. That's why when I played rugby, we used to say that our sport was one that was watched by gentlemen and played by thugs, while football or soccer was played by gentlemen watched by thugs. As genuinely well-deserved as that reputation might be, 46 football fans in Turkey were not expecting car bombs to be the source of their death in the past week. In our own country, the Ohio State University saw a senseless crime of multiple, if not mass, assault. In our own city, police officers have been shot. People who aren't police officers have been shot. The daycare at Memorial Hospital was put on lockdown at one point. All of these things make me wonder, does anybody have this handled? Does there anyone who has this under control? Now, there is a stream in certain types of Christian theology that embrace this sort of darkness. 
They say, oh yes, somebody has this under control and things are getting progressively worse. And that should make us happy because things getting progressively worse mean that Jesus is coming back soon. I never really understood those people until recently and now I get it. I don't agree with it, but I get it. Theology like that fits a sense of the world that fits the headlines that we see. It gives us some answers and it gives us some meaning in times of darkness. But then I read our lessons and I realize that that's not what God has to say. And it's not just Joseph who when things seem pretty bad finds out that there's a completely unexpected answer. It's not just Isaiah going to Ahaz and saying, you don't need to make this foreign alliance. In fact, you don't even need to worry because the world is going to turn. It's even in our lesson from Paul, which otherwise seems kind of out of place with these other two. We might easily miss the nature of Paul's message here. Romans is the one time that Paul writes to a church that he neither founded nor knew many, if any, of the people in. Now remember, a little biblical history, Paul was previously known as Saul, and although we call him an apostle and he calls himself an apostle, he was not one of Jesus' hand-picked apostles. In fact, he was originally a persecutor of Christians and had become quite well known for. There was a time when Christians getting a message from Paul, then known as Saul, a man whom they had never seen or met, but about whom they had heard, would have caused them to cower in fear. But by the time he writes this letter, a message from Paul, a man whom these Christians have neither seen nor met, but about whom they have heard, becomes something that strengthens their faith. In fact, the very letter he writes becomes one of the most significant books in our Bible. All because one day, Paul had an experience with God, in which God knocked him off of his donkey onto his, well, his rear, and said, Saul, your world is about to turn. Your world is about to turn so much that you're not even going to confront it with the same name. I'm going to turn you around so much that you're now to be known as Paul. Your world is about to turn. In fact, nobody, not Isaiah, not angels, not prophets, not Paul, and certainly not Jesus, ever says this is as good as it's ever going to get and from here on out everything is going to get worse until it gets so bad the only choice is for Jesus to come back. Instead like Isaiah who sees the danger confronting Ahaz and his people and says before this baby is old enough to tell right from wrong the kings that you now fear will be defeated. 
angels and prophets and Jesus and everyone else in Scripture repeatedly look at the world in its darkness and proclaim the world is about to turn. The good news of the fourth Sunday of Advent is that with Christmas joy so close and with the fourth candle on our wreath dispelling even more darkness, we can see that rather than a downward slope ahead of us, we can see that the world is about to turn.